Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Justin. And I'm Joel. Today we're joined by Bruce G. Carruthers, a John D. MacArthur Professor of Sociology at Northwestern University and a long-term fellow at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. At Northwestern, Carruthers is involved in the Graduate Comparative Historical Social Science Program and the Kellogg Sociology Joint PhD program. His current research projects include a study of the historical evolution of credit as a problem in the sociology of trust, regulatory arbitrage, what modern derivatives markets reveal about the relationship between law and capitalism, the adoption of for-profit features by U.S. museums, and the regulation of credit for poor people in the early 20th century America. His book, The Economy of Promises, will consider where and how this new system for evaluating trust arises and where it might be headed. Thank you for joining us, Professor Carruthers. Thanks for having me. All right, I guess let's, uh, let's start from the beginning. What got you interested in sociology? Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, about your background, you know, your interests as a kid, and how that kind of, kind of eventually led to where you are today. For me personally, I think sociology is, is such, a, such a cool space um, and, and study. I, I'm an economics and philosophy major, but if I, if I had the opportunity, I, I would add a sociology or anthropology or history as, onto that. Um, so I was just wondering where that interest came from yeah. for you. So I kind of backed into sociology. I did not take it as a major, as an undergrad. And I was in an interdisciplinary program that, uh, you know, exposed me to all kinds of people. Uh, the faculty that I uh, studied most closely with had PhDs in anthropology and comparative literature and economics and uh, actually pretty much anything philosophy, anything but, but sociology. And so I had a great time, uh, but an, an interdisciplinary program doesn't obviously lead anywhere because it just, you know, it leads everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of make a decision given that I decided, wow, I just love college so much, I never want to leave. So how am I going to pull that off? Well, I need to go to grad school because that's where I get to stay around for a little bit longer. So I had taken one sociology class and I kind of decided, and it really was a guess, I kind of thought, you know, the, I'm interested in the social sciences. And I, I like to be able to move around intellectually. And so I kind of made a bet that sociology was sufficiently open and flexible that I could study whatever I want if I majored in sociology at the, you know, for a PhD. And so I just kind of uh, applied to grad programs and went there, but I did not really know what I was getting into. However, it did work out. And so uh, you know, if you look at my CV or you follow the kinds of things that I'm interested in, I've been able to study all kinds of different topics in different countries, in different time periods. Uh, you know, I'm all looking at human behavior and stuff like that, so I'm definitely social sciences. Um, but no one has ever told me, oh, you can't study that topic because that doesn't belong mm -hmm. in sociology. And so I'm just sort of charged and follow my nose. And so it, it was a kind of a guess that I made, uh, a, a bet that I made, and, and I'd say it panned out. But I really did, at the beginning, have no idea what I was doing. I just sort of I thought, well, this seems like a good direction to go in, so I'll give it a try. So I did. Awesome. And we we're going to uh, ask you a bunch of questions about uh, a lot of the topics that you've been researching. However, I was just curious, um, what is your what is the favorite your favorite topic that you've that you've researched across all timelines, locations? <laughs> I know that's a that's a big question. Yeah. You, top that's, three. Okay. Choose one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually. You know, I, I, I've gotten – I had, you know, classes in economics as an undergrad. And to be honest, I thought the topic was really interesting. But I 
could never believe the kind of the 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 model, the implied model of human decision making that that was there in economics. Like people are hyper rational. Are you kidding me? Or they're always maximizing, or they're always utility maximizers, or they're the these kind of uh, you know very individualistic. So the the some the constrained optimization and the um, the methodological individualism of, of economics sort of made me think like that is not good. I don't believe that. But the economy is really interesting. So I've been bringing a kind of a sociological set of tools to the economy. And so I would say I've been doing a lot of stuff on finance in, you know, starting from, uh, you know, early modern England and working my way forward. And finance is a, is a gift that keeps on giving because if you just sort of know what's going on today between the Silicon Valley Bank and, you know, what's happening in crypto mm -hmm. and, you know, what the Fed is doing, you know, there's just like a lot of stuff going on that's really interesting and incredibly topical. And I get to think about it because that's, you know, my main uh, topic of interest. So, so that is sort of for me a go-to. I always come back to that. Uh, but as I said, I do like to kind of follow my nose. And so I've got some other projects um, that are that I've just started after this book that I uh, just finished. So if you're an academic, you finish a big research project and then you kind of get to say, well, what am I going to do now? You know, mm -hmm. so so uh, and, and so I've got a number of, of research projects that take me into issues having to do with corporate social responsibility, um, with stuff like um, uh, climate change and what kind of institutional arrangements would more effectively allow people to take into account uh, the long term. You know, we have a society and an economy that's very focused on the short run. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to think about, okay, what, what do we leave for future generations? You really have to start to think, okay, you know, how do we care about people who don't exist yet, who aren't going to show up for many, many years? How do we protect their interests given that they we can't ask them what they want. We have to kind of invent a set of interests for them. And so I've been looking in different uh, historical times and, and, and uh, uh, kind of uh, policy areas for examples of social institutions that effectively take into account the long term. So it's not exactly finance, but there's a kind of a financial angle to it right. because, you know, you think about what uh, net present valuation is all about and discounting yeah. formulas. It's, it's a way of saying, well, you know, here's the future and we're going to discount it. And that's how we're going to take it into account. So I'm looking for other models for taking into account what happens in the future. So that is exciting to me because it's my current research. So I'm, I'm all over the place, I guess. Awesome. I guess um, personally, I have a similar approach to economics where I tend to be a bit critical of it. I'm interested in antitrust. So being in an economics class, I don't like the presumed assumptions. And specifically with your connection to history, I'm wondering, you know, what are the unique historical elements of American capitalism, which you speak of in your book, um, that informs your research? So my general approach, uh, and this is, you know, me being a sociologist, uh, is that, you know, Free markets or competitive markets or market economies exist, um, but they always uh, exist on the basis of a set of institutional conditions. Like they don't automatically appear out of thin air. So one of the historical projects that I have is to sort of ask myself, well, how are those preconditions put in place? And some of them are like really basic. So things like property. You know, if you're going to have a market, you've got people buying and selling property rights. So how are property rights uh, defined and how do they evolve over time? 
and some of the biggest changes in American society have to do with how the system of property rights were altered. And sometimes it's a kind of a happy story of historical progress. So it used to be the case that if you were uh, a woman and you were married, your property rights were constrained because it turns out your husband had, had the, the family property and you had uh, no ability independently to own property if you were a married woman. If you were a single woman, it was okay. And of course, for men, marital status never mattered. You know, if you were a man, you got to own property and, and, uh, and, it, and whether you were married or not made no difference. So what happened in the middle of the 19th century was that married women were given full property rights, you know, and so they fought for, for that. And that, that change obviously was really consequential because it gave women a bigger role in the economy. And it wasn't really a, a, a violent fight. But if you think about another major 19th century change, uh, the end of slavery. So we used to have a system of property where other human beings could be a form of property. You know, you could be a slave owner. And, and that was the American property system. And obviously that's no longer the case. And people uh, universally think that's a good thing that we abolished slavery. But as you know, that was not a nice, happy, you know, march uh, forward that it took a civil war to kind of settle that issue. And of course, uh, these days, you know, some of the most interesting cutting edge things happening in the legal system in relation to uh, property have to do with intellectual property. So patents, you know, we're close to Silicon Valley here in California, in Silicon Valley and in tech, it's all about patents, you know, and, and, and patenting ideas, patenting, creating intellectual property, deciding who controls it. Um, and, and obviously ideas are intangible, you know, it's not like a physical object. Old fashioned property rights were about physical objects like land or cattle or, you know, a factory or whatnot. And now a lot of the value creation is in the area of, of intellectual property, intangible things. So following for me as a kind of, with my institutional focus, if I'm gonna study how American history has unfolded, I'm gonna be tracking really basic things like how has our system of property rights evolved? But that's just one element of a market economy. There's a whole bunch of others having to do with money and uh, <clears throat> basically information mm -hmm. about the goods uh, that are being bought and sold. Uh, the fact that every side to a transaction needs someone on the other side. So if you have a bunch of people who want to sell something, you need to create buyers. If you have a bunch of people who want to buy something, you got to create a supply side. So, you know, when I look at American history, I'm, I'm looking at how these various institutional arrangements evolved. And it takes me directly into social history, political history, legal history, uh, a lot of the fun stuff that happened in American history has an impact on the economy. So, you know, again, it's a kind of a free-for-all. I get to study lots of different things. Great. I, I'm specifically interested in the idea of an economic promise. Um, I, I think that it's interesting to think about kind of the, because it almost assumes an informed consent that you assume that you're going to get something out of this economic transaction. And, you know, as we're talking about globalized um, economies and um, advancing tech industries, we see that these transactions are becoming more asymmetric and more anonymous. And so how does your concept of promise kind of evolve with um, this changing economy? Right. So I'm interested in promises because they are in, in, in many ways the substance of credit. 
and we have a credit economy, and very shortly I'll be giving a, a talk about this, so I'll have much more to say. Um, but yeah, you're right. The the image, uh, the kind of archetypical um, uh, credit transaction is built around a promise, and it's one party saying to another, uh, if you do this for me, I promise to do this for you. And it's somebody uh, basically committing to future behavior. You know, So if you lend me money, I promise to repay you. And, and it does imply as if this was a very kind of equal transaction. Uh, it implies that everyone knows what they're doing, that the person making the promise has the sort of ability and willingness to, to keep the promise. So, uh, and, and of course there are limits around that. And so one of the things that, that kind of drives the politics of credit is people's realization that occasionally there are credit, credit transactions where the power differences between the two parties are actually quite, diff, quite dramatic. And so when people use the language of predatory lending, right, that's often a way of criticizing some transactions by saying, you know, there's someone who entered into a transaction and made a promise, but they probably didn't realize all that they were getting into. Mm-hmm. You know, they may not have thought through it. They may not be fully informed. And so in the case of uh, financial promises, that's often an argument for greater financial literacy. So people will say, well, we've got to make sure everyone knows what they're getting into. Uh, like if you, uh, you know, have a mortgage with a variable interest rate, right? So instead of a fixed interest rate, which means you know, you're just going to be paying the same monthly sum for the next 20 years in your 20-year mortgage, with a variable interest rate, it means, wow, you know, if interest rates fluctuate, you could be paying more or you could be paying less. Did you think that through, right? A lot of people don't realize, wow, interest rates could go up. And then suddenly this mortgage that I could service, you know, with my current income, suddenly it becomes unaffordable. Oh my gosh, I could lose my house. You know, people don't necessarily think that through. And a very good example of promises that people make where it's clear people don't think them through, and I think this is an example that will speak to your audience, is uh, whenever you download software or whenever you enter into a thing like a cell phone contract, you are, you know, you, when you click to download the software to install an app on your computer or your phone or whatnot, it turns out that you are agreeing to the terms of service and almost no one ever reads those terms of service. I'll bet you have not read, you know, for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I definitely just have scroll. not. Yeah. This person, is sh- they're, they're all shaking their heads here in the audience. You just scroll yeah. because the, the terms of service, that's a promise that you're making, you know, by agreeing to them. And most people, it's like hundreds of pages of boilerplate written by lawyers. And so in a sense, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, we are often making promises without really knowing what we're getting into. And in the case of finance, uh, there is, um, uh, has been at times a worry that some borrowers, particularly individuals, are sometimes, they're, they're naive or they lack financial literacy or actually the deal that has been put to them is so complicated that no one could understand it. It's like you know hundreds of uh, hundreds of pages of boilerplate, and so that you know calls for some kind of regulation or intervention to make it so that everyone can understand what better what they're getting into. And so it really does speak to the kind of stylized version of a promise that you talked about in your question, which is, doesn't it assume that there is informed consent? Because sometimes the reality is. The consent is not very informed, and sometimes it's not very consensual. And so what do we do then? And speaking of credit and promise and, you know, the advent and increase, fluctuating trust in cryptocurrency, um, 
is for crypto is the the credit system the same or are there particular nuances that we should be thinking about and looking out for so so crypto as you know has been around for a very short time um, so i think the original mystery author of Bitcoin was this, uh, I've forgotten, it's a vaguely Japanese sounding name, right? We don't know if that's an individual or a collective, pseudonym, yeah. yeah, a pseudonym. But that's, you know, only a little more than 10 years ago uh, that that came out. And so if you look at the early um, sales pitch for crypto, it was um, very decentralized and it was a form of money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's money that is um, that exists through this blockchain technology. It's not money that's tied to like um, precious metal. Right. It's not money tied to a government. And it, it's something that could function as money because people trusted it. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so the issue of, of uh, trust uh, and, and how much credibility do you attach to this new technology was really important at the beginning. Um, and I would say that, that uh, you know, some of that early promise or the early claims that were made about it have kind of fallen by the wayside. Because if you think about crypto as a, as a form of money, as a substitute for, you know, regular dollars or euros or what have you, the fact that it's so unstable makes it terrible money. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want, if you're going to have a medium of exchange for your economy, you don't want its value to be bouncing around you know, rising and, and about, there's a bunch of winners and speculators who were, you know, overjoyed and then plummeting and lots of people, you know, you want, a, you want its value to be relatively stable. So even though it's still around, I think the, the idea that it could serve as money and therefore potentially enter, enter into every single transaction that you would uh, in, undertake in a market economy, I think that that fantasy is kind of, you know, passed away. Yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. And I think it's sort of disproven itself. I mean, I think people realize that the transactional interest in, in crypto is really dried up. How do you see crypto continually existing um, in the future, then kind of on the sidelines of the main financial institutions? So there are things about crypto that are really interesting to big financial institutions. I think the distributed te- uh, um, ledger technology, that is the, the blockchain stuff, is interesting because a lot of um, transactions, uh, a lot of financial institutions are built around centralized ledgers. So they've got a a core um, set of records. And if you distribute those, that record keeping, it's a way of saying uh, you're protected from, you're not so vulnerable because it's not like, it's not the, the case that you have all your eggs in one basket to kind of keep track of what's going on. That's the, uh, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, people who are worried about cybersecurity, uh, you know, and, and, and remember, you know, a bank, uh, you know, their, their core asset is kind of their records, you know, like they don't, they've got a few buildings and they got some computers and stuff, but really uh, their, their core, um, the core of their wealth is tied up with, with a ledger that's keeping track of who owns what, right? all of their customers and all of their assets and all of their liabilities, these are often not very tangible. They're just sort of, they exist because they're on documents. Mm -hmm. And those documents are in a very centralized location, which makes them extremely vulnerable. Uh, And especially if they're in electronic or digital form, they're very vulnerable to to, uh, hacking and 
and you know that kind of stuff. And so distributed technology, the distributed ledger technology is really interesting because it's a way of saying, you know, if they come after us, well, we've got like, you know, 50 other different versions of the same records. So, and they're not gonna, you know, whoever is trying to hack us isn't gonna be able to take all of those down because uh, they're all pretty strongly protected. And so we don't have to worry that, that uh, someone is gonna, you know, um, attack us and, and, and ruin our lives or hold us hostage, right? right. Which is the other thing, uh, uh, kind of the, the hostage taking that you, you read about. So I think those aspects of crypto are very interesting and they're useful technologies. And I think to the extent that big institutions want to you know, learn how to do that or adopt it, mm -hmm. What they'll do is they'll just buy out the, the, the smaller firms. Yeah, so it'll be kind of a classic startup situation where some, some bright young, you know, former uh, undergraduates from, from a college around here will go off and start something and, and then, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase will say, that's really good. We, we think what you're doing is great. So here's, uh, you know, $50 million. We want to buy your company. And they'll acquire that, that, um, those capabilities. I think your work's really interesting because it focuses on, you know, core economic philosophies, kind of this idea that the market's born out of, um, you know, feudal exchanges, which had fixed social positions. And, you know, we we're able to kind of create greater opportunity through those exchanges. But, you know, now you note that there are certain broken promises with the credit system. So what are, you know, the major reforms or ideas of reform that you think are the most promising? So... Um, the ongoing robustness of our credit system, I think, is really important. So some of the stuff that is making the Fed really nervous today, namely the, you know, some of the banks that are starting to fail, I think, you know, and there's been a lot of commentary on this. I think people are, are kind of wondering, oh, my goodness, how are we going to make sure that we don't have another big financial crisis? I mean, you guys, I don't know. You're probably too young to remember 2008, but wow, that made a lot of people very nervous and very upset. And it kind of documented the fact that if our financial system, which is built around credit, crumbles, then it's going to be bad for everyone. And it's not just going to be bad for the U.S., it's going to be bad for the globe. So uh, we have to make sure that it's you know healthy. It doesn't mean that everyone wins. There will still be winners and losers, but you just got to make sure the machinery and the infrastructure are intact because most transactions that we have in most of the ways in which you guys operate and the way in which I operate, um, you know, I pay for all my goods and services on credit or I use a payment card um, and I, I use cash very, very little. And that's, you know, my, I'm, not, I'm not an outlier in that. So we need to keep the credit system going. So as these new challenges arise, you've got to make sure that the regulators and the policymakers are minding the store. Because if they walk away from it and stop paying attention, it turns out things can get bad very quickly. So I would say that's a sort of an ongoing problem that's probably going to force uh, you know, uh, ongoing attention going into the future. And I would say the other thing that, that people talk about and uh, in, in which the credit system does enter into uh, is that by historical standards, we're at a period of extreme economic inequality. So if you look at income inequality, if you look at wealth inequality, the United States right now, it's, it's becoming quite dramatic. And so uh, why that has happened and what we could do about it and what should we do about it, I think is going to be another political challenge. 
because the track record of extreme inequality is not good. So if you look at other societies where there's been really a huge gap between the rich and poor and where there's a small number of very, very rich and a large number of very, very poor, those are very unstable societies. Those are places that you know lead to revolutions or distributional fights. And, and for various reasons that people are trying to figure out, uh, the United States, probably since the 1970s, uh, by the look, um, the study of either income inequality or the study of wealth inequality, the extreme, the difference uh, has been growing and growing. And so people are thinking, gosh, uh, you know, that is producing political challenges for, for our society. And too much inequality is not good because it undermines all the kind of image of, of a meritocracy, of a level playing field, of everyone gets their chance, of the prospect of enjoying upward mobility. You know, a lot of those things, uh, you know, are, are what makes the society hang together. And if, you know, inequality becomes too durable and too extreme, then people wonder, like, why should I, you know, why should I accept the society the way it is if it means I don't get a fair shake or if it means that my kids won't have a, a fair chance? And so the, the, those issues of mobility and inequality, I think, are also going to be an ongoing challenge. Do you think there are any current, like, viable avenues or plans to kind of combat this inequality and some obstacles that you might foresee that might stop this, this plan from coming to fruition? Yeah, I think, um, so, you know, we live in a capitalist democracy and there's a fundamental tension between those two things because, you know, capitalism creates inequality. It rewards people differentially. And the fundamental principle of a democracy is equality, like one person, one vote. And what you see over the long um, trajectory of American history is that people who have economic power or economic advantage try to translate that into political advantage, which is they try to take their, the, the economic assets that they have and you know, gain undue influence right. you know, by lobbying politicians or campaign contributions or, or what have you. And you also see people who have um, uh, political power, because they are more numerous, try to use, try to use that to improve their situation uh, in the economy. So there are some things, yeah, so, but, but the, you know, they're, they're basically saying, let's put in place some public policies that are redistributional, that will, you know, if we're a very numerous kind of working class, um, you know, the working class discovered a long time ago that, that unemployment really sucks. And if you are, uh, a, you know, a worker, then and that's a reality of of the marketplace. Is sometimes you'll lose your job, and so what the United States and many other advanced industrialized uh, countries have done is they put in place a system of unemployment insurance, so that basically becoming unemployed doesn't lead to catastrophe for a family. But you know that means you have to you know set up taxes that will help pay that, and and those the effect of those taxes is. Is, is partly redistributional. That is taking money from really wealthy families and or high income families and through a system of unemployment insurance, uh, you know, redistributing to the people at the other end of the economic spectrum who now um, are, uh, are uh, you know, enduring unemployment and, and you know, raising their, their, their situation so they're not uh, starving. So, there's this ongoing battle between the kind of two sides of the society, the political side and the economic side. 
And I would say right now, partly because of the way the Supreme Court has ruled, um, the influence of money in politics is probably greater than it's ever been. And that ever been un unprecedented or well, it's very large, very large. Uh, unprecedented means, oh, I got to go back to, you know, early 19th century <laughs> and I can't my brain will explode. Right. I can't do that. Um, but but, you know, it, it, it certainly has been swinging that way. And of course, um, the, you know, wealthy people are there's wealthy Republicans and there's wealthy Democrats. So it's not just going to cleanly fall on one side of the party or another. But that makes it harder to institute policies to address inequality because the people who already have an economic advantage are now able to translate that into a political advantage. Mm -hmm. And I would say that some of the rulings of the Supreme Court uh, for, around campaign finance uh, and, and the ability of corporations to get involved in politics, they've made that easier. So you would, you know, if you wanted to think about uh, uh, mitigating inequality, you'd probably have to think about, well, how do we, how do we change that? You know, how, how are we gonna ch uh, change the rules of the political game so that we're back more in that original idea that it's one person, one vote, and we're more equal in our political influence. How do we change incentives? I recently read a book, um, it's about the moral limits of markets. And I've been thinking more and more about the concept of basic goods. And so what do you think is um, the government's responsibility and what is open to free market? And, you know, do you think that government regulation is, is necessary for these basic goods in order to get back to that um, intrinsic value of democracy as one person, one vote? Right. So I think, you know, people you know, grow up in a certain kind of a society and you kind of take it for granted. You know, you just sort of, well, this is how things are and so I can't imagine things being any other way. But we know when our economy fails to deliver for large numbers of people, one of the things that happens is people start to think, wow, capitalism, you know, I grew up thinking this was just really great and better than the alternatives, but it really, it's sucking for me and sucking for my family. And so what are the alternatives? And then people start to think, okay, what are alternative arrangements that we could construct that might take care of the population better? So if you go back to the Great Depression, you'll find there was a lot of people who thought capitalism is kaput, you know? And at, I mean, not everyone, of course, but a lot of people were starting to really think that capitalism had run its course and it, had a, it produced an economy where there were so many people who were impoverished and so much unemployment and economic contraction that politically in the United States, people really did start to look around to, at alternative models for organizing the economy, which is they sort of questioned what they'd always, always assumed, that this is the best of all possible worlds and, and this is how we should do things. So I think that, that uh, you know, one, of the, one of the things that, that happens is that people ask themselves, is this delivering for me? Like, does this system work for me? And if it doesn't, what's the nature of the problem? And do we need some different policies? Do we need uh, government regulation? Uh, you know, and they start to think about um, alternatives. And certainly one of, the thing, one of the ongoing tensions is that between a kind of a more regulatory stand, stance and a laissez-faire stance. You know, just let the market do its thing. If people feel that letting the market do its thing is gonna produce lots of bad outcomes for lots of people, why would we wanna do that, right? Mm 
Uh, and 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 the political reality is if the economy is shrinking or collapsing and if there's lots of people who aren't doing well or if they feel that the gap between their circumstance and that of, of the people that are the winners in society is becoming too great, they start to think, okay, what, what can we do here? How can we solve this problem? So I think the, the imperative to sort of think outside the box and how far outside the box you start to think is you know, partly driven by um, the kind of fundamentals of, of people's uh, daily lives. Right, that makes sense. Thanks so much for sharing. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Professor Carruthers, thank you so much for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Okay, thank you so much. 